Okay, today is April the 26, 2012, 19th. Somebody's got three arrows pointed at it, and I missed it. I wasn't even looking. I was looking over here. Uh, today is April the 19th, 2012, but we'll blink our eyes, and I'll assure you it'll be the 26th. Um, Two things. First of all, uh, George Mueller and Erica, his wife, are going to be here. They're missionaries in Germany and in uh, Central Africa. They will be here Wednesday at 6.30 for the young people's class. And I'm inviting the adults as well for this particular young people's class because uh, George is only going to be here for Wednesday and Thursday. And so you have a chance to hear him two times. So the adults can come with the kids. Uh, if you don't have kids, it doesn't matter. If you want to be here and hear George Mueller, uh, Wednesday at 6.30, uh, then that will be good. And then Thursday he will be here at our regular Bible class. Uh, only two nights that he's going to be here. Then remember uh, the uh, 27th, which is the day after the 26th, which is not today, uh, <laughs> is going to be our Friday fun day. It's going to be our first Friday fun day for Country Bible Church. And it's not going to happen, it's not going to work if everybody thinks, well, somebody else will go. Uh, if, you will, if you help support this, this has the potential to really be something that people look forward to coming to. You can bring your own games and show us how to play some of your games. Uh, we're going to have a lot of things to do, and there will be snacks there. So I think it will be a good time for like-minded church-age ambassadors to get together and enjoy one another's company. And we're going to give it a shot, and I hope that you will be here to help make that happen. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and that you are here to feed our hunger, our positive volition. Your word is exhaustive. We can study it our entire life and we continue to learn and learn and there's still so much more. But we pray that you will help us to metabolize the doctrines that we learn, that you will help us to file them into long-term memory but that will, they will be at the ready when we need them because there certainly is opportunities out there for us if we're looking for them. And we want to be really not just good, but great ambassadors. And the things that we're learning, not only in giving the gospel, but in standing for your word, for truth, is so important. Help us not to relegate it to uh, way back at the end of the line with regards to things that we are concerned with. 
This should be our number one priority is being representatives of you to give those who are in darkness and lost a chance to see the grace and the light that you provide for us. We know we can't do that in ignorance. And just because we've been doing something a long time doesn't mean that we've been doing it right or effective. So we pray that you will help us to focus so that we can be better servants for you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think I can summarize what, uh, where we've been and what we are dealing with presently in getting the gospel right is the issue of giving evidence that the Bible is indeed God's Word. There are those who say that you don't need any evidence outside the Bible. All you need is to use the Bible. If anyone questions the veracity, the validity of the Bible, then they can just either believe it or not. According to these authors, very scholarly gentlemen, they say that all you need is sovereign grace. I, I, I tell you what, the first time I, I read that, I, I just it wasn't funny, but I kind of giggled to think that you don't need evidence. All you need to do is be chosen by God. And it's that sovereign grace, that election, God chooses you. If He chooses you, He's going to infuse you with this faith that you need to believe so you don't have to go outside of the Bible to explain the Bible. And these scholars say that that's really elevating the evidence outside the Bible above the authority of the Bible. And you've heard me say, this is not an issue about authority. It's an issue of getting all of the facts and all the evidence that you can so that your volition can work in such a way that it's not blind. The more facts that you have, in my way of thinking, the better is going to be your choice as to whether you're going to accept the Bible as God's Word or not. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I also put it on the board. This is a very daunting Scripture. We were studying apologetics as a defense for those who would attack the Bible. That's what this is dealing with. And the first thing you see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, before anything else, it says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify. Put Him in a very special place. I was teaching the kids yesterday, and I was explaining to them. We were going over the edification complex of the soul. Third, the uh, second floor is mastery of the details of life. And while I was explaining that, I was saying that God demands to be number one in your life. And if He's not, something else is going to take that place. And that is how we associate mastering the details of life. Because the details of life is anything that you... You prioritize ahead of God in His Word. It can be anything. 
It can be a person. It can be sports. It can be work. It can be a number of things. But when we talk about sanctifying Christ, what we're talking about is priorities. One of the girls hit it on the nail. They were going all around. I said, tell me, I'm wanting one word what mastering the details of life is all, all about. And she said, priorities. I said, bingo. We all set priorities. And we don't purposely allow Christ to slip out of that number one position. We don't plan on it. We really rather that not happen. But if we don't consistently feed our soul with spiritual nourishment, it's going to happen. Things come into your life and they demand your attention. And it can be something that is very motivating, inspiring to you, or it can be an issue that uh, a, a trouble, adversity, whatever it is, it wants to be number one in your life. And the old saying goes that I've said many times, if you don't master the details of life, they will master you. And whenever you focus on those details and you, you relegate Christ to the fringe of your life, then you're in heap big trouble. And so when we're talking about sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart, we're talking about making Him number one. And you know what we have still on our front of our bulletin? Right under the picture? Your attitude towards the Bible is your attitude towards God. And if you don't show up at Bible class, you don't show up church, now I don't know, maybe people that can't afford the gas and they're getting this at home on, on DVDs or, you know, you need to get it somewhere, some way. Because if you don't, I can assure you that the details are going to master you. They will chew you up and spit you out. And you will become a pawn, a puppet to everything, all these details that life is so demanding. And we have to stand firm and say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. No, 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 I'm going to Bible class. And when we do that, we have a chance of keeping our priorities straight. And when we do that, what we're doing is sanctifying Christ in our hearts. And, of course, we're not talking about the ticker. We're talking about the soul. That's when you, when you sanctify Christ in your hearts, you think about doctrine. And as, as your day goes by and you have all the decisions and, and things that come into your life, the phone rings, someone comes to the door. You never know what's going to happen. But you need to have that doctrine right on the front line of the soul, the colonel used to say, front line of truths. It needs to be in your conscious, your stream of consciousness. And when you do that, you're sanctifying Christ. Okay, if you do that, that's act, if you're doing that, then this is what you're going to be able to do. Always being ready to make a defense. And the Greek word there is apologia, which is where we get apologetics. To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I think we need to stop trying to convince other people that they should believe the way that we should, or the way that we do. I think what we need to do when they're not, they're not accepting our beliefs, they're not accepting the Bible, they're not accepting particular doctrines or whatever, I think it's much more effective than getting into a debate and putting them on the offensive is just tell them, this is why I believe it. People like, they'll listen to what 
you believe, if you're explaining to them why you believe it, and then it's up to them whether they're going to accept it or not. If what you're giving them is the truth, the Holy Spirit is going to convict them of it. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to accept it. But at least you're not going to put them on the defensive. If they say, well, I don't believe this. You say, well, you know, I didn't believe it either at one time. But I do now. And this is why. Because this, this is the evidence. These are the things that have caused me to come to this place where I have a certain belief system. Certain things that I trust and I believe are true. You can accept them or reject them. And it's always good to ask them if they're saying, oh, no, that's, you're all off track there. It's not right. I don't believe it at all. I think that's a great time to ask them, okay, what's your take on it? What do you believe about it? And what do you base it on? And then you wait to listen. When someone takes issue with what we believe, we are obliged to give them the reason, that is, evidence, why we believe what we believe. Anybody can tell what, you, what they believe. Just start talking to someone about spiritual matters and you're going to be in for a treat because there are some really wacko, outlandish, weirdo ideas out there. I say a treat. It's really not a treat. It's really sad, but I mean, you, you, you will be astonished at what people think. And most of the time, people are willing to tell you what they believe and what they think. And you know why? Because that's as far as it ever goes most of the time. Because no one scratches just a little bit further to find out why they believe what they believe. Now you're hitting a nerve. Now you're getting down to the, the real substance to find out why do they believe it. And I keep saying it's been my experience when I dig a little bit deeper, when someone tells me something that is way off course, and I say, well, where'd you get that idea? And they just stand there like, huh? I said, where did you get that idea? Why do you believe that? Huh? They're buying, they're trying to think up something. And they can, don't think because someone is so dogmatic that they've studied this out. And they really researched it and analyzed it, and they've come to this conclusion. Dogmatism doesn't mean a thing. Some of the most stupid people, uneducated, illiterate, doctrinally unsound ignoramuses can be as dogmatic as you can imagine. So it's not about dogmatism. Now, if we expect them, and if we're going to ask them what they believe and why they believe it, then we must be ready to say what? What we believe and why we believe it. But we don't say that first. We talk to them first. Don't think that, okay, let's see, I've got to say what I believe and then what, why I believe it. I can't get, wait to get to some of my notes that are following because it's going to... It straightens me out. And I don't pull any punches... I want to go there right now, but I, I just better not. We always go to the Bible to defend what we believe, which requires giving evidence of its veracity. When Peter said to be ready to make a defense, it appears he meant more than just telling someone that we believe it's true because the Bible says so. Now, if we say that to each other because we believe that the Bible is God's Word, it is our manual, 
It is our standard. All our decisions, our faith, everything has to do with what this book says, the Bible says. So if we say the Bible says something, then all of us, our ears perk up. Really? Well, where is it? Let's, let's look into this. But most people are there. Most people don't even believe that the Bible is God's Word. It was some relic that was written by men a couple thousand years ago. What they have to do today with, with the modern world? So we have to be ready to make a defense for it. And if we just say, well, let's say, for instance, the subject has to do with maybe rock stars and, they, and it turns to their long hair. And you might make a statement, well, you know, it's a, it's a, a shame for a man to have long hair. Well, who says? Well, it's in the Bible. You know what their response would be? Listen, if they're into rock music, they're probably going to say, well, so what? Who cares what the Bible says? Are you going to be shot down there? Are you going to be able to handle that? Just My point is, just by telling somebody that, well, it's in the Bible, it may be very convincing to you, but it's probably not going to be very convincing at all to most people you have contact with. There are many proofs for the Bible without which we could not demonstrate to unbelievers that it is infallible. Now that we can understand everything Scripture says, and I went into this about Christ uh, being the I Am, God is the I Am, Jesus Christ is the one that was in the uh, fire, the bush. In other words, there's things that none of us can ever explain because they're supernatural. We're talking about God. But how, how it's only, it only makes sense that if in all the things that we can research and find, like prophecies that have been fulfilled and the, uh, the interior veracity of the Bible, the archaeological a- aspects with regards to uh, when a town is m- named in the Bible, well, we can find it on the map. It's not something made up. It's not something like you see in the Book of Mormon where there's big cities all over the place and these big battles and you go try to find evidence and there's nothing. So if all these things pan out and show that the Bible is truly untarnished with regards to error, then that makes us feel pretty comfortable that these things that we could never prove to someone, that God is eternal, that God has created the uh, heavens and the earth out of nothing, it only makes sense that everything that he, that's in the Bible would be holy and true. The Holy Spirit can change the heart of the enemy of the gospel. See, we always have to depend on the Holy Spirit. It's not us. We just give the information. But we want to give it in such a way that it penetrates. I think some, some believers, when they witness to someone or they're talking to someone about the Bible... And they go up and usually it's, well, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Which, by the way, is a horrible way to give the gospel. But they say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And the person says, yes, I do. Well, hallelujah. And really in their soul they're going, man, I'm sure glad they said that they did because now I don't have to worry about answering any questions. Well, what should be happening? You put the questions on them. And one thing that makes that so, so sorry is he might have been talking to a Jehovah Witness that says, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. 
He might have been talking to a Mormon. But their Jesus Christ is not our Jesus Christ. All they had to do was ask one more question. Well, what does it mean when you believe in Jesus Christ? Are you saved by believing in Jesus Christ? Just that one question, what would they find? More times than not, they're going, oh, well, you've got to repent, you've got to be baptized, you've got to be good, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And we're learning in this, getting the gospel right, that if they add anything to the gospel other than faith, they didn't receive eternal life because it's only given as a gift. You can't earn it. Now, this next point is really important. We are not to argue with others about the evidence concerning the validity of the Bible. I don't care how many facts you have, how well you know them, and how dogmatic you are. I mean, it makes a big difference to you. You know all these things about this particular issue, and you give them to somebody, you give them the facts, you give them the evidence. And they say, no, I don't think I believe that. No, no, I, I don't believe that. What do you mean you don't believe it? And you just you raise your volume, you get, you know, you get all exercised about it. Don't argue the evidence. It's fine to give them evidence, but don't argue the evidence because... That is trying, you're trying to do the Holy Spirit's job. You're trying to convict them of something. Did you hear what I said? Listen, I'm talking to myself because I've done this myself. I've given evidence. I was so proud of the evidence that I've given some people. And I said, no, I don't think so. And it's just, I can just feel it rising up in me. Well, you stupid ignoramus. What, did you, do you know the English language? Do you see these facts? These are all provable facts. What's the matter with you? Look at Let's go over them again. And so you could go over them a hundred times. And at the end, what are they going to do? No, I don't believe so. Don't argue the facts. Give them the facts. Give them the evidence. And then it's the Holy Spirit to job. He will either convict them or, or they're going to be hard-hearted. And no one's going to believe it that's hard-hearted. You're going to be tempted... Because I'm going to give you five evidences of how to, how to show that it only is rational and reasonable that the Bible is God's Word and it is inerrant. And when you get those under your belt, you want to say, okay, bring it on. I've got the evidences. How many do you want? I've got five. You need three, four? I've got five. And then you give them the evidence. You say, oh, you're so proud of yourself. And they go, no, I don't think so. the Holy Spirit's job. Christians must recognize that they cannot win an unbeliever over by simply arguing about facts. Presenting evidence simply helps the unbeliever to recognize that the Bible is reasonable, sensible, and logical. It is the Word of God which is alive and powerful and the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. Because the Christian faith is based on historical events, Christians should welcome any supportive evidence that archaeological, no, archaeology, there you go, can provide, but they do not anchor their faith to it. You got that? Oh, we get excited when they found, you know, for eons, they said, well, there is no proof that David even existed. There's no proof that there was even a Hittite empire. Nothing. And then they dig it up, and there's the proof. And we say, yay. 
And then they dig up more things, and they find David and proof of that, and we say, yay! And if you want to use that as verification, and this, and that's one of the methods, is archaeology supports the Bible, use it. But what you don't want to do is anchor your faith to that. In other words, that you think that this person is going to be convinced because of that. He might, that might be a piece of the puzzle that helps him to believe it, but it's the Holy Spirit convicting that unbeliever and the power of God's Word that is going to make the difference. The truth of the Bible is not only a matter of facts, but of their interpretation. Even if we can prove the accuracy of the entire Bible, its redemptive significance would not be proven. And that's where I ended last time. Remember, I was telling you that the Pharisees believed the Bible. I mean, you didn't have to make any effort saying, yeah, this is God's Word. Oh, yeah, they, they, they knew it better than probably most people who would talk to them. But they misinterpreted it. They took the Mosaic Law and tried to make it a method of salvation by keeping it. That's what I just said in this paragraph. But there are also a great number of people today who do not believe that the Bible is God's Word. To present the, uh, the gospel to unbelievers in the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, we must give proof to those who may not even believe that the Bible is God's Word and why it therefore be heeded. An apologetic must employ at least some extent to convince the unbeliever. The Jewish audiences that he met, this is Paul, on his travels, uh, Paul used their scriptures to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah foretold by their prophets because every Jew at that time believed the scriptures. However, today, uh, most Jews don't believe the Bible to be God's word. Therefore, in presenting the gospel to them as to unbelievers, we must take the apologetics, apologists' approach that Paul used with the Greeks on Mars Hill. Do you know, you, you know what, that is, what that is about? Paul pointed out that the people worshipped an unknown God. And then he started talking about God, the God of the Bible who created the world and everything in it and started describing Him. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul didn't start with Jesus Christ. He didn't go into... Corinth and start talking about Jesus Christ. He started talking about God, and they had all these gods that they. And he, he Paul found this one uh, altar to the unknown God. Uh, they, they had all these. If there's one they missed, well, you go to this God. He, he's a miscellaneous file for the for the unknown for the gods. And so he starts talking to them, and he started talking about. God creating everything. And then he started to describe God. What would come in handy when you're, starting, when you're trying to describe God to some person that doesn't know anything about him? What would pop into your mind? Essence box. See how neat that is? If you have someone trying to describe God for you, they're going to stumble and they're going to have a hard time of it because... But you know the essence box. You know the ten attributes. And it's right there in your soul. You just see it. 
then when you start talking to God, I mean talking to someone about God, you just take that essence box and you start explaining to each one. You would probably tell that person more in a few minutes describing the essence box than he has ever heard in his whole life or may ever hear in the rest of his life about God. So you want to start talking about God. He was giving them evidence of the one true God. He mentioned repentance, judgment, and the proof of redemption which God provided uh, through the resurrection of Christ. So finally you're going to get to Christ, but only after you build. You've got to have a foundation. Charlie Clough used to say this all the time. Uh, Charlie Clough graduated from MIT. He's got probably a genius mentality. And I was at a conference a few years back, and he was talking about how what what Christians do wrong is they take a a proof text. A a proof text is just a verse that you think is going to explain a whole doctrine in one verse, and you throw it out there and you say, "There." there. And the people envelop it and surround it and gobble it up with the worldview because you didn't support it with anything. It's just out there dangling by itself. And so what what Paul did, he started out talking about, okay, uh, you have all these these gods. Well, let me tell you about a god that you don't know about, but it's not this one that you're talking about, this altar. This is the true god that created the heavens and the earth. And this is what our god is like, the true god. And he started giving him the essence box. He started talking about what God was like. And he said, now, we have a God that is absolutely perfect. We are fallen. We're sinful. We have a problem. We need redemption because there's going to be a judgment. See, you haven't even talked about Christ yet. But you're, you're, you're explaining it in a way that they're sitting there and they're following. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then eventually you're going to get to redemption. God sent His own Son in order to pay the price because God can't wink at sin. He can't just say, oh, well, I'll let it pass. If He was, He wouldn't be God. And then by the time you get to that point, then they have a frame of reference. They say, oh, okay. Now that starts to sound logical rather than just starting out, what do you believe in Christ? And then after you, you explain that He went to the cross, He died for our sins, and then He was resurrected which means God accepted His atonement. And there's nothing else for us to do except to accept His atonement. That's what He's talking about is put it in a, in, a, in a frame of reference. Put it against something. Tell a story. That's what you're really doing. You're telling them a People like to hear about stories. If you, if you start out with God and how He created the universe and all these other things, then when you get to the part to where we are fallen, there's a certain judgment coming, the good news is that God's own Son became a sacrifice for us and God accepted that sacrifice. And since He did it in total now, it's received as a gift. Now I would suggest, I don't know how you would... I think that it's it's a good idea to get it all out. Don't stop so they can start wanting to... Um, argue with you about the first thing. Maybe they're into evolution. And when you say God had created the heavens and the earth, He's an all-powerful, omnipotent God. There's nobody like Him. He's outside of time. He's outside of this sphere. And get on with it. If you, if you pause, they might want to 
Well, I don't know about that. I, I think they came from the Big Bang and the goo. And what does it say? They came from the goo to the zoo to you? Okay, Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Now, I have the reason here underlined because what does it mean to reason? This is the Oxford English Dictionary, 11th edition. It, the verb for reason is this. Number one, to think. That's what you want the people to do is think. People don't, by the way, people don't like to think. They like to, if you're talking about something and you're trying to persuade them about something, they don't want to think. They just want to get rid of you. You're like that phone call that people get. That right at the end of the movie, it's the best part. Oh, You get on the phone. That's their temperament towards you when you're trying to persuade them to do something. They're afraid it's going to cost them money. You're just interfering with them. You're intruding in here. So what you're trying to do is get them to think. And don't let them just dismiss you. When you're ask, You know what they can't do when you're asking them questions is dismiss you. They can't do it. You're trying to get them to understand and form judgments logically. Reason something out. Find a solution to a problem by considering the possible options. One good way of doing this is helping people understand. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We all have a sin problem. What are you going to do about it? What about that, huh? And just wait to see what they're going to say. Well, I don't like to talk about religion. Why? Why not? What's the matter with that? Well, it's just, and every time you ask them another question, it's going to be harder and harder for them to, oh, to ignore the subject. The second, the second uh, definition here on the verb of reason is reason with means to persuade with rational argument. Give them evidence that makes sense. They probably never heard it before. So that's what it's talking about when it says reason together. Try to engage and make them think that there's something logically you're trying to persuade. Not pressure. There's a difference between pressuring and persuading. You girls know that. You ladies know that. You like to be persuaded by... when. Just think back when you were... If you dated, if you were courted... Didn't you like guys to persuade you? Some guy came up and said, Hey, let's go to the dance. Oh, I don't know. And he said, Yeah, it's going to be fun. And da 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 And he's starting to give you evidence and everything. And he's trying to persuade you. And you're, Didn't you all kind of like to be persuaded? Huh? I mean, he was showing interest in you. He wanted to go somewhere with you. I assume that you would think, Hey, that's, that's pretty neat. Uh, give me some more evidence. And Well, maybe. And when maybe meant what? More evidence, more things, more good things, see? So that's persuading. But what did you not like? Somebody that you were not interested in that was trying to pressure you. You didn't like that, did you? And say, I have to, I have to relate this to women because guys, you know, 
they never get pressured by the guy. The thing with guys is they they don't ever have to worry about being pressured by some gal. It is very rare. Usually they have to be careful not to be the one doing the pressuring. They have to have that distinction between what's persuading and what's pressuring. And there is persistence. You get that mixed in there, and it's just all confusion. But we're not there right now. We're not talking about that. Okay, here we go. This is some of the things I wanted to get to. The problem most Christians make when they give the gospel or engage someone in a conversation using the Bible to make a point is they talk too much. Can I say it in more dogmatic? You say too many things. Now, I don't want y'all looking at the rest. Y'all, aren't, y'all are reading ahead, I can tell. Because there was numbers there. I could see smiles going, you know, numbers. We're not to the numbers yet. Now, there are times when you need to maybe say something. I gave you an example a while ago. If you go somewhere, and a lot of times we meet people, just acquaintances, and we try to give them a little nudge towards the gospel. We try to test the water. Maybe we only have a couple of minutes. And, but, but saying, well, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And they say yes, and then you leave. That's not saying enough. You understand? Because just because they said they believe in Jesus Christ doesn't mean at all that they're saved. So I'm not talking about that. Most of the time when you have a chance to witness to someone, to stand for a doctrine... It might be a family member, it might be a friend, whoever it is, and you're discussing this thing. Usually you say too much. Here's the points now. By the way, if you're ever in doubt of where you're saying too much, you are. Okay. Number one, they don't ask questions to find out what the person believes. I went to a to a, a, a church one time, and down in the basement they had this some kind of reception or something, and I had I, I knew I knew this lady from somewhere way, and she was so excited about uh, speaking in tongues, and this wasn't even a Pentecostal church. She, she said, "I hadn't seen you in so long. How are you doing?" Blah blah blah, and it just did. Not ten seconds have passed. Let me tell you about how great it is speaking in tongues. Boy, talking about tongues. Her tongue was full time. I could get a word in. Idea. In our, we're going to turn someone off. Number today. You got one that said, maybe they're a Christian. Maybe they're homosexual. No. What do you think? I doubt it. What And they say, what's your base? Most Christians. And someone says, yeah, I think, you know, and there's new data now that they're able to be gibberish. So, there's an abomination man to a contact man. You going to throw that at him right then? Are you getting this? What's the first thing you want to do? Made all it is? Is it basically usually emphasizing talk to you you know, they're the ones with the time to find up. I have a, bu- a burning in my bosom. Ask your friends, these, I don't care. Face, you can one how you had an experience and it was just earth shaking. It was meant so much to you and it goes on and on. So what? They don't care about your experiences. What they need is, is, is there, is your, let me put it this way. 
Are your experiences alive and powerful? They may be to you, but they're not to other people. We should anticipate people questioning the validity of the Bible. After all, it was written in ancient times, and most people don't have a clue how it came about, how it was compiled and established. The following is a part, is part of a lecture that was given by Dr. Minton at the 2012 Schaefer, Schaefer Conference in Houston, Texas. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time, but I have a time to go into this, and I think this is the chart. Yes, this is the chart. You're not going to be able to see it too good because it's kind of small, but I want to explain to you what it is. Ooh, it, well, yeah, you can still see it pretty good. These are What we're talking about is how the Bible came about. You could call it canonicity. By the way, how much, of you, how much do you all know about that? Hmm? You know anything about the manuscripts? Have you ever heard of manuscripts? Do you know why they're called manuscripts? Because they were written. Everything were, were, was manuscripts until they had the printing press. And the epistles were written. So were the uh, Gospels. And so what I'm going to show you in this in this chart is it's surviving manuscripts of ancient authors. And what it does, it gives the author the name of the writings and the approximate date in, when it, in which it was uh, given the earliest... Well, I, I might as well, you might as well be seeing this while I'm showing you. The traditional authors, the name of the writings... The approximate date. For instance, we have Homer was the author of the Iliad. It was written 900 B.C. Now, the earth earliest copies came about in 400 B.C., what was, which was about 500 years after the original, and there are 643 copies that are still extant. In other words, they, they have that many copies. Do you understand what this is saying? you got Sophocles, he wrote the tragedy, and here's your dates. It was 1,400 years later that they had the copies, and there's 193 of them. Now, these two are the, by far the Iliad. 643 is so much more than all the rest. The next closest one is 193. This one's about 200, so those are the two. Most of them you have 8, 9, 8, 10, 7. These are the number of copies. Here are the traditional writers, and look how long it was after the original where they had the copies made. Uh, these are the, this is how many years past that. So, this is, let's just take the one that is the, the, the most prevalent, 643 co copies. It was written 500 years after uh, the copies were made, 500 years after the original. Let's compare that with the Bible. Here's the Bible. It was written by eight or nine men. It's the New Testament. It was completed around, uh, it was compiled, it was written between 40 and 95 A.D. It was finished around 95 A.D. In 120 A.D. is when the copies came, which were 25 years later. Look at the number of manuscripts we have. Six, over 6,000. Over 6,000 manuscripts. Look how close it was. Just 25. Look at all these numbers here. This was just 25 years after it was completed. 
and they have 6,000. Look here, this one had 7, 8, 21. See, see what we've got here? Now, do you know up here the Iliad is the one that has the most copies outside the Bible. The Bible has about 10 times more. No one questions the Iliad, even though it was 500 years after it was written, they had the copies, and there's only 643 copies of them, and nobody questions the Iliad, nor do they do any of these others. The only one that is really questioned is the one that was written only 25 years. I mean, the copies uh, were circulated within 25 years of the time of the originals, and there's 6,000 manuscripts, and that's the one that they question. Now, knowing that should give you a sense of, I don't know what, security, confidence? Most people don't know this. 6,000 manuscripts. So, that's a little bit of, a tidbit of information to put in your arsenal. When you're talking to someone, they say, oh, well, you know... That Bible was written back 2,000 years ago and all the copies and all. all you, what do you think a person would do if you ask them a question? Do you know how many manuscripts there are for most of the classics and the antiquities? Do you know about how many manuscripts they have? They probably won't know. You can say, well, the most is around 600. Most of them have about 8 or 10. Do you know how many manuscripts that we have that are left extent today with the Bible? What's the chances of them knowing? If you say over 6,000, what is that? That's called evidence, is it not? Something that they didn't know before? That's just one piece of the puzzle. How was it determined which books would go into the Bible? Would you like to know that? I mean, because I was dealing with an unbeliever a couple of weeks ago on emails, and he said, well, you know, they just... How did they choose, choose which books were going to be canonical anyway? It is our measuring rod. But when they started making the books, and they would take little sections, and they would have these sections like this, and they would set them in and glue them into that. You know what this was called? A canon. Anyway... The canon is a list of books where prophets and did not contain doctrinal contradictions were accepted by the Jews for centuries and may have been formally recognized in the first century A.D. Esther, Ezekiel, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs were sometimes disputed. The book of Esther was likely doubted because it does not directly mention God. The book of the New Testament were accepted by Christian congregations if they met, met certain criteria. So, the way that this book was compiled, because you had, you know what epistles are, they're letters, you had letters circulating, you had the Gospels written, you had uh, the Book of Acts, and you had uh, Revelation, and they were circulating. How did they get all into this book, and how did they get in this particular order? How did they choose? And who, who chose? Well, first of all, here are three ways that they, they decided. First of all, there was apostolic authority. It had to be either apostolic author, uh, authorship or authority was very important. It had to be an apostle or someone very closely associated with apostle. Number two, 
the tradition. That meant if a book had been used for many years, it would be more likely to make it into the canon than a disputed book. If churches rarely or never used a book, it would not likely be considered as canonical. And the third is doctrine. Books must have sound doctrine. The standard was the apostles' doctrines. Most of the books of the New Testament were probably recognized as canonical or inspired right away. Manuscript P46 is a collection of Paul's epistles that was copied around A.D. 2000. The Marcion's list is given below. That Marcion means Mark's gospel. Uh, dates to around 140. These show that there were early collections of books, that is, Bibles. It is important to understand that the early Christians asked and relied on the Holy Spirit to guide them in these matters. However, they, listen to this, however, they only recognized the canon of Scriptures. They did not determine it. You got that? Because the Holy Spirit was involved in all this. If God is sovereign, and He is, don't you think that He can get the books that are canonical, that are inspired by Him to be compiled in the book and leave the others out? Well, that's exactly what happened. And they recognized the canon of inspired scriptures. They did not determine it. They were, the Holy Spirit was instrumental in that. What time we got? Oh. Uh, this is really interesting when you have time to do it, and I'm afraid... I don't have time to do it. I've got less than five minutes left. Any questions on what I'm going over here? The canonicity, how they compile the, 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 the books of the Bible. Yes? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, from the time... Yeah, in, in, in 95 A.D. or 96 A.D., somewhere in that area is when the Apostle John ended the book of Revelation and that closed the canon. Somewhere in that area. And they were circulated. These things were being circulated. And within 25 years, they, were, they already had copies that were being uh, distributed. Oh, no, no, there wasn't, there wasn't 6,000 at that point. The 6,000 is what we have today that extended. And what we're going to see as we go through this, there have been thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of manuscripts that have been destroyed. The Catholic Church is big time responsible for a lot of that because they didn't want the manuscripts to get out. They didn't want the people to read the Bible or know anything about it. But in God's providence, because He's sovereign, of course, we still have 6,000. That's a, that's a, think how many there only God knows how many there have been produced, but there were a lot of copies that were made. Because when you got when a church got, let's say, uh, the Rome, uh, the Book of Romans, when the Romans received that epistle, these things were like <laughs> valuable. I mean, very valuable. And what is the first thing that, well, you know, there was, I don't know how many churches there were in Rome. Maybe there were 35, 40 churches. I don't know. What's the first thing they're going to do? They're going to take it and give it to another church, and they're going to copy it down. They take it to another one. They copy it down. These things were on papyrus. Uh, they were on vellum, which is, uh, was a more expensive type. This was a, a, a goat hide or something like that. But when you pass it around enough, what's going to happen? It's going to start deteriorating. It's only going to last so long. 
And so they, there was copies. that uh, Once these every church had a copy, what do you think the members are going to want to do? Oh, let me see. What, what was that letter again? They didn't want to just go to, to the church and hear it read. They wanted copies as well. And so there's no telling how many copies there were. And to, for us, through all of the ages and all of the attacks and all the destruction of trying to get rid of God's Word, for us still to have 6,000 manuscripts. Now, they're, not, they're not, not all complete manuscripts. Some of them are uh, just parts of a manuscript. You know, I mean, a, a complete uh, book. But uh, that's incredible to have that many. And how many Bibles do we have today? Huh? From that. Well, only God knows that one, too. And there's no telling how many Bibles have been destroyed. But God's Word is alive and powerful. And the grass fadeth and withers, but the Word of God will not fade away. He sees to it. So that's what we're going to get into next, next time. We'll start getting into some of this uh, canonicity, how these were, came about. It's really interesting about um, the, the last portion of this canonicity part that I'm going to give you. I think it's 10 or 12 um, items on how to tell uh, a choose a good Bible. Uh, you know, what, what you want it to, 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 to see. And we'll see the formal and, and the dynamic equivalence and a lot of things. So anyhow, any more questions? Okay, let's close. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word that you have preserved it throughout the ages. It is still alive and powerful. And when we read and study your word, we don't have to have to be concerned about those who attack it because it speaks to us in a way that no other word can. It goes deep into our souls. It divides asunder those things that only it can reach. So we pray that you will help us to keep giving your word number one priority in our life. We live in desperate times and it's going to get worse. And we have to have these verses and our methods of reaching the lost, especially by asking them questions and engaging them and having them think. We have to have this at the ready so that we can be more effective as servants for you. And we pray this in Christ's name.